Hello and welcome to Beyond the Mekong, a podcast broadcast by The Diplomat. And with me today is Phil Robinson from Human Rights Watch, who has been in the job for more than 14 years. Phil, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. How are human rights shaping up in Southeast Asia? I know it's a pretty obvious kind of a question, but we've seen a rough ride over the last couple of years, probably over the last five, 10 years. Cambodia, Thailand, Myanmar. What's your prognosis? It's been a continued downward slide. Uh, you know, quite clearly in the Mekong, if you look at Myanmar, in the middle of a, a brutal civil war where we've got crimes against humanity being committed every day. Uh, you know, we're in the third year of that conflict. Uh, Cambodia, the democratic opposition has been effectively wiped out uh, since the, the, the banning of the Cambodian National Rescue Party in November 2017 and then the subsequent bogus elections in 2018. Vietnam is, is a complete total disaster. There's going to be a story coming out about uh, Vietnam's hostile intentions towards the international community. So at the same time that people are talking about doing trade deals and working with the Vietnamese government, the Vietnamese government views the international community as a danger, as something that is trying to subvert the Vietnamese Communist Party and their continued control of the Vietnamese people. And that kind of uh, paranoid outlook, uh, you know, that there's a color revolution trying to topple, whether it be the government of Vietnam, the government of Laos, the government of Cambodia, is something that is being, I think, Perpetuated by China, China looking at the, you know the, the hostility of the West, mm-hmm. and then extrapolating that, and you know working with various different client states, including those you know the hostile intentions of uh, human rights lobby, uh, the international development agenda, participation, civil and political rights. All these things are being sort of construed as being something that will subvert autocratic single power, single party power. Is it too much to expect these countries to measure up to Western standards on human rights? I mean, it's, it's not like they ever have. Well, you know, they've all signed the various different conventions and treaties. They've actually said that they want to do this. It's not like someone is necessarily uh, twisting the arm of these governments. I mean, look at Cambodia. Mm-hmm. It's ratified every major international human rights treaty that exists. Right. It just has no intention of implementing any of them. You know, even countries like Thailand where, you know, there is a democracy, but, you know, we just came through a, a, a period of um, almost a, a 10-year uh, military dictatorship. Right. So there's a, there's a high degree of hypocrisy by these governments. And that on one hand, they say that they want to play by the international rules, but then when push comes to shove, they say, well, we don't want that one. We don't want this one. We don't want to have uh, accountability for, for instance, enforced disappearances right. or issues related to freedom of expression on the internet. Are these governments increasingly working together behind the scenes in terms of ensuring their own agenda? We've had uh, activists who have crossed borders go missing. We've had activists within their own borders, like uh, Sombat Sompong, who I mentioned earlier, go missing. And uh, it's quite worrying in the sense that uh, it's a breach of every international obligation that they have signed up to under the United Nations for a start. Well, it, it's quite clear that there is an uh, accelerated level of cooperation between various different Mekong states mm-hmm. and what is increasingly being termed as transnational repression, which is uh, pursuing people across borders, pursuing those activists. Um, we're going to be bringing out a very comprehensive report probably in April about what the previous Thai government of General Prayut and General Prawit mm-hmm. were doing 
with the Cambodians, with the Vietnamese, with the Lao, with the Burmese and others, and with China. And what we have found is that more and more governments are willing to pursue their activists overseas, uh, engage in surveillance, engage in abductions. Uh, we've had people, for instance, in Thailand who've gone missing, like Paul Sayabong, uh, you know, a trade union leader yep. from Laos. Uh, we had a guy named Thai Van Duong, who was a political dissident from Vietnam, who past April was uh, kidnapped in Patung uh, Thani and, and dragged away by a Vietnamese snatch squad. This is what I wanted to ask you, is how does it logistically work on the ground? I mean, are they sending over their own squads? Are they in cahoots with the local constabulary? Are the governments aware that this is going on or are they just quietly turning a blind eye? There is a level of collaboration and cooperation between various different governments. Uh, we were referring to this as a swap mark, you know. Mm. Uh, I want that guy, I want to get this person back. Uh, what do I need to do in order to persuade you, let me do that? Mm -hmm. uh, there's a supposedly a, an agreement that, you know, you, if you're going to come into our territory, you have to inform us, you have to work with us. Right. Um, and we've seen that. We've seen, for instance, uh, that we had the case of a, of a political activist named Khon Imon from Cambodia, right. who had fled to Thailand, who was a political refugee, uh, you know, had UNHCR refugee status. He was picked up at the Big C by a Thai police squad, was interrogated, was driven around, then was handed over to a car of Cambodian officials who were in Thailand, who then drove him to the border, took him across the border, and took him down into Phnom Penh the next day so that he could recant his support for the opposition and say that he was joining uh, the Cambodian People's Party. And then there were the uh, arrests made before Hunmanetsk, is it, mm. uh, earlier? February? Well, this is, this, is, this is a case where the Cambodian embassy and the Cambodian government is informing the Thais and they're saying these guys are a bunch of troublemakers. Uh, they might protest or they might, you know, they'll make something up about it. And, and Thailand is more than happy to go after them. Does the United Nations and third countries, do they have to do more in terms of, I mean, they have, they're supposed to have, uh, in many of the cases, uh, they sanctioned United Nations and refugees, which should afford them protection. If they can't enforce that protection, then what good are they? Well, this is a critical failing, uh, for instance, of the various different governments uh, that, you know, for instance, Thailand is not being held accountable to protect refugees. Thai immigration law, because Thailand hasn't ratified the refugee convention, mm -hmm. uh, states very clearly that these people are, are illegal migrants. They cross the border illegally and they're subject to arrest and deportation. Now, in the case of these six people who were arrested uh, before whom the net uh, uh, turned up earlier, All of these people had UNHCR registration. Yep. They were considered to be persons concerned by UNHCR. So as soon as they were picked up, it fell to us and others in civil society to start ringing the alarm bell. You know, first of all, working with the UN and saying, you know, these are these people, in fact, do need protection. And, and the UNHCR will swing into action and basically talk with the Thai government, talk with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, talk with others, saying, you know, you can't send these people back. But then. We also have to get other embassies involved from governments in Europe and North America. They need to step up and tell the Thais, don't send these people back. And it's through that concerted advocacy that we're able to finally get an agreement that, okay, these people are refugees, these people need to be protected, they won't be sent back. But it's all on us to basically run around. Somebody in Cambodia sets this in motion by claiming, okay, this person's going to set up a protest. It's the easiest thing in the world for Thailand to, to, to swoop these people up. And, and frankly, they don't care. So 
those people now, you know, that were arrested are also in the immigration detention. And we're expecting eventually that they will be allowed to resettle to some third country, uh, again, probably in Europe or North America, and they will be out of the picture. And for the Cambodian government, and for the Thai government, that works just fine. Do you ever get tired of it? You know, I mean, I can't get tired of it because, I mean, people's people's lives are on the line. You know, we don't step up, or we don't make the phone call, we don't send those emails or, you know, communicate with these policymakers, these diplomats, these UN officials, sure. uh, then we'll lose somebody. I think what I'm driving at is that over the last 20 years, 25 years, Human Rights Watch has become a benchmark in terms of calling governments out and uh, stepping up in terms of uh, uh, the protection of those who need it, which will lead me to another point in Australia shortly. Uh, it's just, uh, do you envisage that the situation would be like this, say, 14 years ago when you first started with Human Rights Watch? Well, I would say that uh, we expected that there would have been a lot more progress on human rights and democracy going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, Which I think was a kind of, you know, that, that feel-good kind of energy that was coming out initially at the end of the Cold War, and then there were enormous demonstrations, pro-democracy rallies, you know, mid-2010s, but that was actually... I think a good thing. I mean, people were expressing themselves. People were out on the streets, and then all of that got clobbered. Mm. Yeah. So we look at we look, for instance, in Thailand. uh, You know, quite clearly, uh, there was a very good uh, constitution in 1997. There was a reform movement that had really sort of built up momentum. Uh, You had Thaksin Shinawatra elected as prime minister. I mean, he started uh, undoing some of those reforms, which was unfortunate. But the reality was that we had expected that military coups were a thing of the past. Right. So the previous military coup had been in 1991, and after the Black May 1992 democracy protest, we figured that that was that. That everybody said there can't be any more coups. And what we saw was another coup in 2006, 2007, and then the instability, and finally the coup in 2014, which really set back Thailand a, a, a very huge way uh, in terms of democracy and human rights. You shift to Cambodia. I mean, Cambodia in 2013, there was a pretty, pretty free and fair election. It was, it was pretty wide open. And, yes, it was. And certainly the 2022 commune elections were pretty wide open. That scared them. And it scared the ruling party, and the ruling party decided they were going to shut things down. Excuse me, not the 2022 commune election. I meant the 2017 commune election. Well, let's just election. clarify this. So the 2017 commune what, elections yeah. were quite free and fair. 2018. The opposition Cambodian National Rescue Party had been um, wiped out. Wiped out, indeed. And the ruling Cambodian People's so Party had seen one every seat in Parliament. Well, it's interesting. Started. 2017, you had uh, the commune elections mm-hmm. in Cambodia, where Hun Sen decided that they were going to run on their economic record. That you know, right. he thought that you know they brought development. This is all these things that had, had worked out. Yep. And that they weren't going to use the kind of repression and violence that the Cambodian People's Party had used in other previous elections. It didn't work out for them. People realized that there was a possibility to send a message. A lot of people unhappy about corruption. A lot of people unhappy about land, loss of land and other natural resources. And so there was a, a very, very strong vote against the Cambodian People's Party, although you know, it was 44% went to the Cambodian National Rescue Party. But it was enough to scare the ruling party to believe that if they didn't wipe out the opposition mm-hmm. that they were going to lose. And, and this, and this zero-sum mentality of, of politics in Southeast Asia. I think it is zero-sum. Uh, I think that's quite apt. And then it basically happened again with the commune elections in 2022. They, uh, the Candlelight Party, which was a reincarnation of the uh, Cambodian National Rescue Party, they were allowed to contest 
mm-hmm. they got about 25% of the overall vote, which is not a threat to the ruling party, but that was enough. And then they find themselves disqualified from the national elections because they didn't have the original paperwork yes. when the party was set up. Which, which, is, was which, like, is, which is ridiculous. Yeah. What we're understanding, and we're going to be bringing something out, uh, we've done some research in this most recent Senate election that's happened this past Sunday, on the 25th of February, is that, in fact, there was a concerted effort by government officials and Cambodian People's Party representatives uh, to intimidate the uh, Cambodian uh, Candlelight Party uh, representatives, the councillors who were supposed to vote for the senators. Mm-hmm. And they were either being offered bribes, they were also being told that they should think about the safety of their families if they decided to vote for the opposition rather than stay away from the vote or vote for the Cambodian yep. People's Party. They were being told that if, in fact, they did buck the Candlelight Party direction and, and voted for the CPP, that uh, they could not be removed from their position because the, the Minister of Interior wouldn't allow it. Some of them were being offered $3,000, $5,000, mobile phones, motorcycles, you name it. There was a concerted campaign by the Cambodian People's Party to try to steer uh, Candlelight Party councillors who obviously would have voted for the Candlelight Party if they had uh, yep. not had this kind of pressure uh, to either stay away or to vote. And, and what we saw was that 25% of the Candlelight Party uh, councillors voted for the CPP. Right. So, you know, obviously the campaign was effective. You have three, they have their can- you have three Candlelight Party senators and you've got 55 yeah. CPP senators. They have their more than More than once I've had people who have said to me that might have a politician, uh, an opposition politician who's sitting down quietly having a cup of tea when he's uh, approached by a CPP aficionado, mm. and he might just sit down gently and say to him, you know, we're okay with you. You know, you have friends. Are you okay with them? Yeah. Will they be okay? Right. And then they just walk off. It's this sort of subtle, oh, hardly subtle. Right. <laughs> they're, they're, they're in your face. Well, I mean, one of the things that people are also being told Candlelight Party uh, councillors at the commune level were being told very clearly by uh, the government that, hey, 2027, the Candlelight Party is not going to be allowed to contest for the commune elections. So, you know, now is the time to get off the train. Now is the time to switch over, take care of yourself, take care of your family. We'll find you a job. Yeah. Well, that's it. And and this is what happened. I mean, look at the size of the Cambodian government. I mean, they've got... 11 deputy prime ministers, they've got a cabinet of I don't know how many dozen. Sure, Hun uh, uh, <coughs> I mean, it's a, it's a buffet. Absolutely. It's a, it's a government buffet. Hun uh, Mene, Hun Sen's youngest son, Hun Mene's youngest brother, who's just been named the 11th deputy yeah. prime minister to top everything off. So it's a family affair. But, but what we're seeing is a, a failure of good governance across the board. Mm-hmm. So in places like Laos, people are very angry about corruption and land seizures. But they know if they stick their head up, uh, it'll be knocked off. Tallest nail gets knocked hardest. Yes. Vietnam, uh, you know, what we're seeing is they've completely wiped out independent civil society. They're going after the NGOs. You know, they're going after not just the environmentalists who are, of course, talking about issues related to global climate change and coal and things like that. But they're also going after the LGBT NGOs. They're going after the, the rural development NGOs. Anything that is outside the control of the Vietnamese Communist Party is suspect. It's a, it's, a, it's a potential area for what they call peaceful evolution. And they see peaceful evolution as being U.S. 
and the Europeans uh, using money and influence to overturn the Vietnamese Communist Party's rule through a, in sort of a united front structure. I mean, the, the Vietnamese Communist Party looks at what other people, what they did to other people in the past, and they say, okay, they're going to do the same to us. Yep. But they're saying, okay, we need to in engage with the international community. We need to do business with them. But the takeaway is that they are going to infuse all aspects of civil society, of various different organizations, of the legislatures, of line ministries with Ministry of Public Security officials in order to prevent this so-called peaceful evolution. And this is the, the mentality. It, it is in, in, you know, in talking to diplomats who have had a lot of experience, for instance, working in China, they're like, this is China light. This is what Xi Jinping has done. But it is now being done in Vietnam. And that is a telling indication, frankly, of where we are in the region, you know, stretching from, from Myanmar to Vietnam. And the really sad thing is that no one is paying attention. This is where I wanted to go next, is that uh, uh, between us we work pretty much opposite ends of the spectrum from a, uh, a media perspective. Uh, how do you see the extraordinary changes that have taken place in the media game over the last 20 years? How has that impacted on your ability to get the message out, to communicate with people? Well, I mean, let's look at Cambodia. If we go back to 2016, yep. You had uh, two major English language dailies. Uh, Which were Cambodia, independent. They were independent, the Cambodia Daily and the Phnom Penh Post. You had dueling newsrooms. Mm -hmm. You had uh, young journalists coming into the region, as well as young Khmer journalists coming up, who were all being educated, yep. who spoke English. You know, a number of those journalists, in fact, there was a, the, the sister publication of the Phnom Penh Post was the Myanmar Times. Right. So there was a, a, a you know, for a period of time, a number of people working in Cambodia, and then they switched over to Myanmar. Sure, Myanmar. Well, Myanmar, Myanmar became democratic in 2015. Right. So there was, you know, a, 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 a different era dawning in Myanmar as well. And, and so you had a, a, a media environment where there was, it seemed to be a lot of hope and optimism. There were some incredible stories being done, of, you know, uh, muckraking, digging into corruption, you know, exposing various different malfeasance is what have you, excuse me. But the, the, the long and short of it was that media was very vibrant and was independent. And it was covering everyday events. Yeah. So it wasn't just focused on human rights or opposition politicians or the government. It was everything. 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 And everything. from that the fabric is Well it's completely it's been completely torn. Uh, you know, Vietnam has no independent media. Laos certainly has no independent media. And I would say Cambodia has almost no independent media. Pretty close to... Thailand, you have um, a demise of some of the major major dailies. It does seem to have improved, however, over the last yeah. couple of years. Well, I mean, no, but you used to have two, two major English uh, dailies here. Right. And now there's only one that's publishing, actually, a, a print copy. Mm -hmm. The other one's online. Myanmar, of course, I mean, all the Myanmar media has now again fled to Thailand uh, after the military coup in February 2021. So, uh, you know, we were dealing with exiled uh, media. Right. Uh, you know, if you go to Chiang Mai, you'll find, uh, you know, it's a sort of deja vu situation where you almost have back to the, the, the 1990s and early 2000s, where you had all the Myanmar media basically ensconced up in Chiang Mai and along the border reporting on Myanmar from outside the country. That is now happening again, although the difference is that there is still quite a number of brave journalists who are standing and remaining yep. in Myanmar. 
to get the news out. But those journalists are constantly under threat. And, you know, and the military finds someone who's a journalist, that you know, even if they're, like, taking photos on the streets or trying to do an interview, you know, they're in for it. No, I was just going to add that uh, a lot of them are working undercover, i.e. a communications specialist working with a... Uh, oh, not even that. They're not even saying communications. Right. They're basically, they're not, they're saying, I'm just unemployed you. And now what has happened, of course, in Myanmar, right. if you have the imposition of a mandatory conscription, then it's going to sweep up all, all men between 18 and 35 and all women between 18 and 27 for mandatory military service. And whoever's left in the cities is heading for the exits. Right. Uh, perceptions in the West, there was this uh, odd case in Australia where uh, an ABC journalist, Antoinette Latouf, was fired from her job because she reposted a Human Rights Watch statement on Israel. I thought that was quite odd. I mean, Human Rights Watch has a, you know, you, you guys have a solid reputation around the planet for the work you do. And I thought that was just a little bit offbeat. And your organisation wrote uh, an open letter to Ida Butrose, mm. the uh, publisher. Right. Well, what came out of all that? I just thought that was a little bit well, way out of Well, the, the response we got to the, the letter was not satisfactory in any way, shape, or form. It's interesting. On one hand, they're, they're not impugning our work. They're not saying that, like, you know, what we published about uh, uh, Palestine no. and Gaza in this instance was in any way wrong. No, they never said that at all. They, 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 you know, they didn't go there. Um, they're claiming that, you know, somehow she did something that was outside her remit as a journalist, which is, you know, they're trying to say that she posted something on social media. It's absurd. And hopefully, eventually, the ABC will lose this, this case, mm. and it will be a lesson to them to not censor journalists. I mean... The bigger issue is, like, what's behind it? Well, this is where I wanted to go, and not just with Australia, but in terms of the perceptions of the West through the media and what is happening in this part of the world. Mm. It's competing with, that sounds a bit silly, but uh, the idea that countries in Southeast Asia are competing with Gaza and Ukraine in terms of the attention of mm. politicians in places that matter. Well, I think that certainly is. I mean, it, 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 I mean, Cambodia has never mattered so little to people in the West. I mean, people forget, you know, now 30 years ago... That's another generation. That this was, this was, this was, you know, yeah. you know Cambodia and Untak was in the headlines. You know, Gareth Evans, the foreign minister of Australia, leading the way. Where's Australian leadership now in Cambodia? It doesn't exist. You know, I think that if we really look at Cambodia then and Cambodia now, uh, you know, it, it, it's been a killing in the dark, and the killing has been democracy and human rights. Those were the things that were promised to the Cambodian people as part of the UN engagement in that country, and it's all gone. But the, the larger issue is that the attention of the world has essentially been drawn away from this region, particularly the Mekong. Um, you know, everybody always says that, you know, ASEAN matters so much, it's like, you know, the biggest population polls, this is where the economies are growing, everybody says they want to do business in Asia. But when you talk about political attention, when you talk about development aid, when you talk about, you know, willingness to speak up on core issues of human rights and democracy, sure. not only uh, is Australia missing, but also the United States is increasingly missing, the European Union and its member states are increasingly missing, we're just not getting uh, the level of attention. And I had a very, very telling conversation with a group of diplomats from Europe mm -hmm. when I was in Phnom Penh last time. And they all ultimately agreed with my argument that Hun Manet is old wine in a new bottle. 
you know, that he's not one iota different on democracy and human rights from his father who sent. But they were always talking about, oh, well, you know, it's a much younger cabinet, and they speak better English, and, and somehow, uh, you know, they're, we're, they're, more they're more accessible. And I was like, you know, what is this? Is this like, is this like teachers grading students for having an appropriate tone in class? I mean, the bottom line is that people are being driven out of Cambodia. Opposition people are having their lives ruined. Land is being seized. Malfeasance and corruption is an all-time high in Cambodia. And so are the number of political prisoners. Yeah. And, and, and they want to talk about the fact that it's now easier to get a meeting with a, with a minister. What surprised me is that uh, this image that they're putting forward, we're open for business, we're trading, we're... But when the businessmen get on the ground in countries like Cambodia and in Vietnam and elsewhere around the region, they're now experiencing the exact same problems that journalists, NGO workers, opposition politicians, lawyers and academics began to experience uh, around eight years ago. Yeah. Well, you have, you have, you know, ongoing malfeasance. I mean, Cambodia, you know, the, the bribes that are required to bring you know, basically raw materials into the country and things like that. It's off the charts. I mean, I remember there were some surveys of the garment um, manufacturers before COVID, and they were all complaining about all the sort of off-book costs that were involved in doing business in Cambodia. Because these guys were seen as, when they bring in money and they bring in investment, this was everybody gloms onto it. You know, everybody wants a piece. Uh, the party's taking some, the, the senior people are taking some, the police are taking some. The cost of doing business is inflated sure. by those kind of off-budget corruption costs. And when we talk about good governance, it's not just about government corruption, but it's also the cost of doing business. It's about being able to speak out. It's about knowing that, for instance, you could take a complaint to a government department and try to get some sort of outcome. You know, none of those things are possible. And they're becoming even less possible under many of these governments because they're becoming much more dictatorial and people are afraid to uh, even post things on Facebook, much less file a complaint. Where would you like to see things go over the next 10 years versus where do you think life in Southeast Asia will go? Well, if we look at Thailand, I want to see democracy solidified here. I want to see... Uh, of recognition that the military can't have any more troops. The military has to be depoliticized and it has to be taken out of the political context and dynamics. Unfortunately, I don't see that happening. So, you know, democracy will continue to be under threat despite the fact that everybody talks about how wonderful democracy is, but, you know, we constantly have lurking in the, in the background of the military and the possibility of another takeover. If you look at places like Cambodia and Laos, it's hard to see any sort of future that's going to uh, be vibrant and, and good for the people. I think it's a situation made worse by the state of the economies and you know, the Chinese are not returning with bag loads of money like they once hoped. Well, I mean, I think, yeah, I think they, in some ways China's investment is all about what it does for China, not about what it does for the, for the, the, the country at hand. But more importantly, I think what we're going to face is uh, a real environmental disaster connected with the Mekong. That the Mekong is going to ultimately fail. That the freshwater fisheries that provide protein mm -hmm. to so many people, not only in Cambodia, but also in Vietnam and others, is going to fail. At what point and how many years from now does the river not reverse back into the Great Lake? Mm -hmm. Because of the Tonle Sap. When that happens, 
the, the richness of those fisheries, which is amongst the, the richest fisheries in the world after the Amazon, will fail. And that will be another human rights and you're issue. Going to, you're, and so you're going to talk about issues of, of, of food security in the center of Cambodia. And Thailand can take my, more migrant workers, but how many more can they take? And the abuses and, and violence and things that are done against migrant workers in Thailand are a very significant problem. Right now we have, in, for instance, the, the Thai government is talking about backsliding on the major anti-trafficking reforms that were created in 2015 to deal with the, the Thai fishing industry. There, 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 there are eight laws that were just passed in the first reading in the parliament to walk that all back. So we're, you know, we're, we're sliding back towards the battle days right at a time when we're going to see more pressures from Myanmar, from Laos, and from Cambodia to send migrants into Thailand. Phil Robinson, thanks very much. It's been a delightful chat. Great to see you. Cheers.